Hey everyone, welcome to this week's conversation with Dr. Stephen Ned about the body and how to fix, protect, or maintain it using outside-the-box alternative solutions. If you're a big fan of the pharmaceutical or surgical approach, you are so in the wrong place because on this podcast, we're not going to be pushing the conventional medicine methods or way of thinking about health. If you're looking for another way to live longer and healthier, join me, Ron Ned, and my brother, Dr. Stephen Ned, for this week's body chat about raw meats and fish. Me? I'm a retired Twin Cities chiropractor currently helping people buy and sell homes in the Tampa Bay and Los Angeles areas. My brother has a thriving chiropractic practice in the Clearwater area of Tampa Bay, Florida. In this podcast, we're going to chat about all sorts of topics related to health, nutrition, exercise, just about everything having to do with the body. You're invited to listen into our body chat, but don't forget that neither of us is giving you health advice. So don't rush off to do something without either checking with your doctor first or seeing Dr. Steven Nett as a patient at his office. Good evening, Steve. Good evening, Ron. So last week we talked about parasites, and as we went through that discussion, you had brought up about how certain raw foods, especially meats, can carry parasites and can be a problem. So like I said last week, they gave me the idea for this week's episode, which has to do with raw fish and raw meats and information about that since people do eat them sometimes. Now, the two types of raw meats and fish that I know of are sushi and steak tartare, which is what I mentioned last week. Are there any others that people commonly eat that I didn't think of? Yes, and there's actually quite a few other dishes worldwide that utilize raw meat. Wow. Okay. And yeah, and I found a really good article from bonappetit.com called 15 raw meat dishes from around the world. Hmm. Now, since one of these is steak tartare, let's look at the other 14. Okay. Now, the first one is from Korea and it's called, I'm going to, well, I'm going to probably butcher half of these, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, this one's called yukwi, mm -hmm. which is made with beef that is julienne cut and mixed with garlicky soy based sauce and then topped with sesame seeds and quite often a raw egg. Hmm. Uh, next up is Ossenwurst, which comes from the Netherlands. And this is a raw Dutch sausage that was originally made with ox meat. And so the word Ossen is actually the Dutch word for oxen. And it's flavored with spices like cloves, mace, and nutmeg. Okay. We now come to Met, which is a German minced pork spread that is typically flavored with salt, pepper, and depending on the location, garlic or caraway. Uh, from Thailand, we have Khoi Soy, which is raw beef mixed with fish sauce, chilies, lime, and fresh herbs on top of it. Uh, there's another version of this called Larb Lu, which involves it being thickened with blood or bile. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yuck. I know. So in Vietnam, you can go to uh, get some what's called Bo Tai Chan, which is thin sheets of raw beef round, lightly marinated in citrus, and then topped off with chilies, onions, and peanuts. Uh, Kitfo is a popular dish in Ethiopia, and it contains minced raw beef, Ethiopian spices, along with an herb-infused clarified butter. And this is typically eaten with injera, which is a spongy kind of flatbread and occasionally topped with crumbled goat cheese. Hmm. Okay. I know, yeah, I know, I know all about that uh, spongy flatbread because I went to a Ethiopian restaurant in Orlando years ago when I was at a seminar. 
And, you know, they, they brought this, uh, this dish out with different types of meats and stuff. And it was cooked. But it was interesting because it's like, it was sort of like, it was almost like a paper towel that was wet. And then you grabbed a piece of it and you used that to pick up the food. And then you ate that, you know, without a fork. Similar to like using maybe like a, you know, a taco or something, a, a soft taco to pick something up. Right. It was actually quite good. So there's another dish from Ethiopia where they use raw beef and it's called gourd gourd. But unlike kitfo, it's left unmarinated and cut into bigger chunks. It's also commonly eaten with that uh, spongy flatbread in Jera that I just talked about. Mm-hmm. Now, moving up a little north up to Lebanon in the Middle East, you'll find a dish called kibbe neya, which is composed of raw ground meat, minced onions, and bulgur, and that makes a great spread on flatbread. Uh, if we head over to Chile, they have a dish that was inspired by German immigrants, and it's called crudos, which is basically met, but it utilizes beef instead of pork. Mm-hmm. Mexico has basically a ground beef ceviche called carne apache, which cures you know, a little in lime juice before serving and, and makes a great dip for tostadas. Wow. Yeah. I think I've seen that on menus before. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Turkey and Armenia, they have a raw ground meat dish called sig kofti, which is also known as chik kufta uh, in Armenia. I probably butchered that. I'm sorry. And, you know, this is sometimes served in small dumpling forms and has a wide variety of spicing options. Okay. Now, probably the next most popular raw meat dish to steak tartare is beef carpaccio from Italy. Yeah, I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this consists of paper-thin slices of raw beef tenderloin or sirloin uh, drizzled with some olive oil and a few drops of lemon and sometimes finished with capers and onions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty yummy. Mm-hmm. Now, believe it or not, we have our own version of steak tartare here in the United States, and it's found in South Texas, and it's called Parissa, which is a mix of raw beef, bison, or venison mixed with cheddar cheese, minced onions, and some type of pepper. Hmm. And then finally, we come to Japan, which has the most diverse selection of raw meats, as well as sushi, of course. Uh, They have raw beef, which is called gyu tataki, raw chicken, which is called tori wasa, but the most common is basashi, which I'm afraid to say is raw horse meat. Oh, wow. Not something I would recommend for obvious reasons, including those related to animal rights. Right. So along these lines, in China and other Southeast Asian countries, they still eat raw monkey brains. Mm. <laughs> so that's really That could explain some things. Yeah. It was interesting because as you were going through that before you got to the last couple, I was thinking, well, almost everything is raw beef except for the one that was raw pork and none raw poultry until you got to Japan because poultry, of course, is one of those things that it's like, that's a big problem. I know. So we've gone through these various dishes, none of which I would order in a restaurant if they were the only things on the menu. So why have they become popular? I can't figure that one out. And do they have any health benefits over cooked meats? Well, the answer to the first part of the question having to do with popularity is that some of these dishes are purportedly in some cases tastier uh, and have a 
texture that's described as incomparable and unbeatable and are considered a food delicacy that many people want to say that they were able to experience at least once. Mm -hmm. But let's look at some of the health benefits of raw meat versus cooked meat. Okay. Now, raw meat contains enzymes, which are normally killed off when the meat is cooked. So this creates the apparency that raw meat is easier to digest than cooked meat. And there's advocates for this. Okay. But, you know, it does sound logical that that would be the case. But the problem is that all of those enzymes end up getting destroyed in your stomach anyway. Right. <laughs> Hydrochloric acid and pepsin are what really digest meat in the stomach. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, you know, that theory is kind of blown out the water there. Right. Now, raw meat is also typically loaded with B vitamins, and some of these, including B6, are heat sensitive and destroyed when meat is cooked. Mm -hmm. Now, that could potentially be troublesome if you only eat cooked meat in your diet. But all you have to do is eat some fruits and vegetables like spinach and avocado or supplement with B6, and that problem is solved too. Okay. All right. Next up is oxidized fat, as you know, is a health destroyer since it can produce inflammation and nasty free radicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, fat that is exposed to air causes it to oxidize and it can occur at room temperatures, but the reaction occurs much faster at higher temperatures. So obviously when you heat the meat, then, you know, then it can oxidize it more. Right. Well, fortunately, common spices and herbs, including garlic, act as antioxidants to prevent the fat in the meat from oxidizing and degrading, whether it's cooked or not. Mm, okay. So a lot of times we instinctively spice up our meat with these herbs and little do we know it's actually preserving them mm. from, you know, oxidizing. Okay. So also potential carcinogens can result from cooking meat, especially on the grill. But again, these can be reduced significantly by using antioxidant rich herbs and spices found in marinades or by themselves with some studies showing excellent protection from onion powder, as well as grape seed and rosemary extract. Hmm. So that's interesting to know. Now, those are popular dishes and there's some possible health benefits, but are there any dangers to eating them? Well, absolutely. You know, the odds of illness resulting are not too high because these dishes have been around for a long time, in some cases, centuries. So if they were poisoning or killing lots of people, they definitely would not have stuck around this long. Right. But at the same time, it's important to know that since they involve raw meat, the odds of contracting infectious microorganisms like bacteria, parasites, and viruses are much higher than eating meat that is at least partially or fully cooked. Right. Now, one of the raw foods that I haven't brought up yet is a seafood that's more popular when eaten raw instead of cooked, and that is raw oysters. That's true. And, you know, I've never been a fan of this. I, I really don't get it, by the way. <laughs> to me... Uh, it has the consistency of a big glob of snot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I'll do oysters Rockefeller, which is cooked, but raw oysters, I'll take a pass for many other reasons in addition to its consistency. And these include, first and foremost, oysters can become contaminated with a specific type of bacteria called Vibrio vulnificus, which is actually one of 12 different species of Vibrio living in salt or brackish water that oysters might come in contact with. Now, oysters actually feed by filtering water, and if the water is contaminated with Vibrio bacteria, oysters can become contaminated with it too. Mm, okay. 
the big problem with Vibrio vulnificus is that it can be life-threatening and even fatal, especially when it's eaten by someone who has liver disease, diabetes, or a weakened immune system. So both the Centers for Disease Control and the FDA have warnings about raw, uh, raw oysters. And I found an FDA article that goes over some of the common myths about raw, raw oysters that I thought would be good to go over. Okay. So let's start with myth number one. Eating raw oysters are safe if you drown them in hot sauce, which kills everything. Oh, <laughs> Okay. Right. So the fact is the active ingredients in hot sauce have no more effect on harmful bacteria than plain water. Mm -hmm. Nothing but prolonged exposure to heat at high enough temperatures will kill bacteria. Right. Okay. Okay. Myth number two is avoid oysters from polluted waters and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Well, Vibrio vulnificus in oysters has nothing to do with pollution. Rather, these bacteria thrive naturally in warm coastal waters, such as over here in the Gulf of Mexico, where they live. Right. Okay, next myth is an experienced oyster lover can tell a good oyster from a bad one. Yeah, right. <laughs> the fact is, uh, Vibrio vulnificus can't be seen, smelled, or even tasted. Hmm. So don't rely on your senses to determine if an oyster is safe. Next myth is alcohol kills harmful bacteria. Well, the fact is alcohol may impair your good judgment and kill brain cells, but it doesn't destroy harmful bacteria. Right. Uh, next myth is just a few oysters can't hurt you. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact is Roberta Hammond, PhD, the Food and Waterborne Disease Coordinator for Florida, cites a case where a fatality caused by Vibrio vulnificus occurred after eating only three oysters. Wow. Yeah, this, so the serious of any case depends on many factors, including how much bacteria is ingested and the person's underlying health conditions. Kind of sounds like the uh, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next up is avoid raw oysters in months without the letter R and you'll be safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is while presence of Vibrio vulnificus bacteria is higher in warmer months, According to the Department of Health and Human Services Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a full 40% of cases occur in colder months from September through April. Wow. Mm -hmm. Those all have R's in them. Um, well, it says, let's see, is higher in warmer months. Oh, uh, avoid them without, without the letter R. Right. That's what I'm saying is all the ones that you mentioned that their problem are months that have R in them. Yeah, that's true. Except, well, April, yeah. So I th almost every month has an R in it, doesn't no, it? No, May, June, June July, July, August. Yeah, so maybe they had it backwards. Yes, it sounds like they did. Okay. All right, next up is raw oysters are an aphrodisiac and will cure a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> With the fact okay. on that one is there's no scientific evidence that either of these commonly held beliefs is true. Wow. All right, so then those are issues that can happen with these dishes. Is there anything that people can do to make it so that it's safer to eat them, to reduce these dangers that you were talking about? Yes. And by far the most important thing is to make sure the source of the meat is fresh and free of infectious mi microorganisms and toxins. So the only meat you should ever eat raw is meat that you can completely trust. And, you know, we've talked in the past about how much healthier organic and non-GMO grass-fed and grass-finished beef and 
pasture-raised poultry is compared to cattle meat that comes from suboptimal sources. Right. But, you know, when it comes to raw meat, there's no guarantee that it's pathogen-free, even if it comes from healthy, happy animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether you buy it from a butcher or a grocery store, there's always a risk to your health if you're going to consume meat raw. Mm-hmm. So the smart thing to do if you're you know, not going to cook the meat and eventually eat it raw is to, one, freeze the meat for two weeks before you eat it. And that will kill most potential pathogens. And I highly recommend that you use a vacuum wrap system like Food Saver to protect it by keeping air and oxygen out. Okay. Uh, the second thing is when you defrost the meat, make sure you allow it to f- defrost in the fridge because if you let it do so on the counter, especially if it's not in a vacuum wrap, you'll end up getting your newly sanitized meat contaminated again. Right. And then finally, always keep the meat refrigerated up to the point that you're going to use it. The same goes for fish. And you know, with fish and shellfish, it's best to keep them on top of ice in the fridge until you use them. Okay. Those are all good things for people to know about and do. So we brought up fish, raw fish, which is sushi, or that's one way of using raw fish. So how is sushi prepared so that it's safe to eat? Well, first of all, only sushi-grade fish should be prepared and consumed. What's sushi-grade fish? Um, well, it's basically, they, they usually label it, and there, there are regulations from the FDA. Uh, in, including the fact that, you know, as far as restaurants and grocery stores that sell prepared sushi, they, they have to follow certain guidelines. Mm-hmm. And one of them is a required step that involves freezing fish at temperatures of minus four degrees Fahrenheit for seven days or at negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit for 15 hours because either of these will kill any parasites that are there. Okay. Uh, you know, it's pretty obvious that restaurants and stores have been doing a good job because the cases of sushi-related illness are far below the number of people that are sickened by contaminated produce, including leafy vegetables and jalapeno peppers. Mm. You know, in even rare cases of illness involving sushi, the rice in sushi is more often the culprit than the fish. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, there's a bacteria called Bacillus cereus which can spread rapidly in rice that sits at room temperature. Uh, the way that it, this is prevented is by putting sushi rice in an acidic bath like a vinegary solution that lowers the pH down to 4.1, which basically kills all harmful microbes that can grow on it. Hmm. Wow. That's something I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that either. Yeah. Now, another important thing about sushi is if you go to a restaurant that offers sushi, stick with the more standard and traditional fish like salmon, tuna, whitefish, and eel, for example. Okay. I I know of people that have gotten sick from a toxin found in some fish called cigatera. And this is found in certain tropical water fish, especially fish that come from reefs. And it can cause some really, you know, some pretty awful gastrointestinal and neurological symptoms. Hmm. That, that can linger. I know wow. a couple people that had that. Uh, one particular fish I highly recommend avoiding is a poisonous puffer fish called fugu. And even though there are master fugu chefs out there, it's still not worth the risk because improperly prepared fugu can kill you due to the fish's potent neurotoxin. Wow. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they'll let a little bit of it get into the, uh, the flesh of the of fish when they make it. And it 
gives you sort of a numbness on your lips and people like that for some reason. So there's this whole culture of that. And I'm like, nah, I'll take a pass. Yeah. It's probably the same people getting botulinum toxin stuffed into their foreheads and lips and cheeks and things like that. Now, you know, if you decide to make your own sushi at home, make sure it's certified sushi grade fish such as salmon or ahi tuna. Now, all you have to do is check the label or ask the butcher at the store that you buy it from. Okay. Uh, So, you know, in summary, when it comes to sushi, your best bet is to get it at a restaurant or to grab a sushi container from your local supermarket. Uh, But if you want to be a little adventurous and prepare your own sushi, make sure you buy sushi grade fish that has been frozen according to FDA regulations. And it's also important to eat your sushi as soon as possible and do not let it sit in the fridge for more than 24 hours. Oh, does that apply even to the store-bought sushi? Correct. Okay. So now that you bring that up, how long can you store dishes? Not just sushi, but even like steak tartare and those other ridiculous things that people eat in different countries. Um, If you're making the dish, how long can you store it? Or if you have leftovers after you eat some of it, can you store those all for only 24 hours like sushi? Or how does that work with the different dishes? Those are great questions. And I had to really look and search for those. But, um, you know, pretty much all of the raw meat recipes, including steak tartare, call for you to prepare them within two hours of serving them. And it's in your best interest not to have them as leftovers for the next day, even if you refrigerate them. Hmm. But if you do decide to do this, make sure you don't let it sit out too long and refrigerate it as soon as possible. And then the next day, take it out of the fridge about 15 minutes before serving to get it to room temperature. Okay. So yes, it's pretty much still safe. But the problem with eating, let's say, steak tartare the next day is that the quality of it deteriorates quite a bit. The texture changes and the taste also changes a lot too. And if you recall, those were all the things that made it such a, you know, a popular dish. Right. So you're getting rid of all these benefits that it gives that, you know, that you would eat that instead of cooked meat. Okay. Now, one reference talked about preparing steak tartare in advance, like the night before. That's also not a good idea because of not just the meat potentially changing dramatically, but also the other ingredients added to it will change or lose some of their fine aspects. So, for example, when you freshly cut onions or shallots ahead of time, it's hard to keep their fresh cut flavor and texture, even if they're refrigerated. Any fresh cut herbs that you use will also tend to change their flavor. Egg yolk, when made ahead, tends to separate a bit. And if people utilize lemon, then you should definitely not add this until right before serving because lemon juice will do to the meat what it does to fish uh, that's used to make uh, ceviche. Uh, it'll end up denaturing or cooking it over time, and that means no more raw meat or steak tartare. Okay. All right. So now, when somebody is preparing raw meat or raw fish, what are the most important things that they need to keep in mind? Well, you know, in addition to making sure that the raw meat and fish are truly fresh, uh, there are some very important food handling techniques that are recommended. And I'm going to review what I went over in two previous podcasts episodes 106 covering shopping and cooking tips and episode number 24 on sanitation basics. Okay. So in that I talked about, you always make sure that you always wash your hands, dishes, utensils, and counter surfaces often while preparing and cooking all foods, Mm -hmm. especially now with the coronavirus outbreak. Mm -hmm. 
When preparing or cooking raw meats, poultry or other foods, uh, use hot soapy water to clean surfaces and your hands. And then instead of using regular hand towels, use paper towels and then discard them immediately. Okay. Uh, never use the same plate, tray, or utensils for the cooked meat that you used for the raw meat unless you take the time to thoroughly wash them with hot soapy water. Right. I always do that if I take something out to the grill, like I have a corningware and I take the meat out in, in a corningware, I, I go right back to the sink and I rinse and wash that out real good. So when the, the meat is done on the grill, it's in a clean pan instead of one that had the raw meat in it. Right. It's also a good idea to separate raw meat, poultry, and seafood from other foods in your refrigerator. Most people mm -hmm. you know, do that logically. Mm -hmm. And you should always try to cook all foods thoroughly. Meats, poultry, pork, and especially ground meats should be cooked until the juices run absolutely clear. Okay. And exceptions to fully cooked meat include beef or lamb, which can be rare. And as we found out earlier, beef can even be rare uh, or uncooked, but I don't recommend it. Right. Plus, pork and veal should be at least medium rare. And chicken and turkey need to be fully cooked with an internal temperature of at least 165 degrees. Mm -hmm. And of course, some fish such as uh, salmon and tuna can be prepared raw for sushi. Right. Okay. Now, are there any other safe ways of preparing meat or fish so that you can eat it without cooking it, but you're not leaving it raw and it's still safe to eat? Yeah, and I think you know one of my answers to this because it's one of my favorite dishes to make, and you've actually helped me do it a couple times in the past. That's true. And that would be? Ceviche. Yes. So let's dig into ceviche a little bit here. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go over all the details of making ceviche here, but rather look at how it's possible to use raw fish or shellfish and actually cook it without using any heat. Mm-hmm. Good. So the first time somebody told me about ceviche... I actually thought it was a joke. <laughs> I thought, I mean, I said, yeah, that's crazy. You got to be kidding me. I thought, you know, what's the difference between this and sushi? Right. So just like everything else that I delve into, I wanted to know how the fish in ceviche was any different from raw fish that you get from sushi. Right. And the answer is very simple. Ceviche involves marinating raw fish and even shellfish like shrimp, scallops, and conch in citrus juices from lemon, lime, grapefruit, or passion fruit. Hmm. Now, I'm not a fan of grapefruit, and it's pretty hard to find passion fruit, so I've always used a combination of fresh-squeezed organic lime and lemon juice, as you know. Mm -hmm. Now, cooking requires heat, so technically ceviche is not cooked. However, both heat and citric acid, which is the acidic component of citrus juice, are agents of a chemical process called denaturation. Mm -hmm. Denaturation is a process where the molecules of protein are unraveled and altered due to exposure to heat or citric acid. And what you end up with is obvious changes in the chemical and physical properties uh, you know, of the protein source, and in this case, fish. Right. So basically, when fish is bathed in citrus juice, uh, which you know, again contains citric acid, this process, which is called denaturation, turns the flesh firm and opaque, just like it would if it had been cooked with heat. Hmm. And it's important that you know the fish or shellfish is fully soaked and done so long enough so that the flesh is fully denatured or cooked, you know, so to speak. Right. You know, I've learned to cut the fish or shellfish into no larger than one half inch by one half inch pieces to ensure that it gets fully cooked. Okay. 
And I've stopped using shrimp because you really have to cut it thin to ensure that it'll be fully cooked because I've had times where I noticed that it was still gray. And there were other times when I cut it real thin and it ended up like real tough and it was overcooked. Mm. So there's a real fine line with, uh, with shrimp and I've decided, you know, it's just not worth it anymore. So I just decided I'm going to use uh, different types of white fish like snapper, grouper, or sea bass mm-hmm. and shellfish like scallop, squid, or conch. Okay. And actually on the 4th of July, I made up a batch, which, which was some of the um, snapper that I caught offshore fishing about two weeks before that. What else did I use? Oh, I used scallops too. It came out really good. Okay. So it's very important to note that citric acid will not kill bacteria the way that heat does. So always use fresh, disease-free, and parasite-free fish. I can't stress that enough. Okay. And, you know, I thought it would be fun to learn about the origin of ceviche. Yeah? Did you find yeah, out? I did. Okay. And I found out that ceviche originated with the Incas in Peru. Hmm. And they seasoned their fish with salt and chili peppers and marinated or, again, cooked it in the juice of tumbo, which is banana passion fruit. Hmm. Yeah. I'd love to find out how to do that. Yeah. There's got to be some information somewhere. Yeah, I, I think that would be an amazing uh, flavor. Uh, I'll try that. You know, the last, the last batch I made, I added mango to it, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to find out where I could at least get some standard passion fruit, if not bat- banana passion fruit. Now, the only other method that I can add that safely prepares meat without cooking it, but at the same time doesn't leave it completely raw, is the process called brining. Mm. Right. So the brining of meats is a very old process that was used for food preservation, especially before the advent of refrigeration. And this is where heavy amounts of salt plus some water were used to preserve meats for long periods of time. And many of these brines included what are called cures, which helped prevent bacteria growth in meat that was stored in brines. Hmm. So cures contain things like sweet pickle and various herbs and are you know, mixed with the meat along with salt and water. Today, brining and curing are primarily used for adding flavor and moisture to meat so that it ends up juicier, uh, as well as more tender and tastier when cooked, plus the added benefit of reduced cooking time that's needed. And brining has basically the same effect that citric acid and cooking have on meat because it alters the chemical structure of proteins by breaking some of the bonds that give proteins their shape. Sounds familiar, right? It does, yeah. Yeah. So the salt in the brine denatures the meat proteins, which causes them to unwind and form a matrix, a matrix that traps the water, which gives the meat more moisture content. Hmm. So that's how it works. Okay. And brining is especially good for different cuts and types of meat that are usually drier, including poultry and pork, which have much less fat than they used to, which means that they tend to dry out more quickly when cooked and are less flavorful than in the past. So specific examples of these include poultry breasts, pork chops, shrimp, and even Thanksgiving turkey. Yep. I knew that one was in there. Yep. So the basic formula for brining is one cup of salt to one gallon of water. And for added flavor, you can add in some smashed garlic cloves, peppercorns, uh, citrus, preferably smashed citrus, or even a sweetener such as honey or brown sugar. And here's a neat tip if your meat has skin on it, like a Thanksgiving turkey again. Mm -hmm. It's recommended that you drain it, 
then pat it dry for a few hours before cooking time and leave it in the fridge uncovered. And what this does is it helps to become even more juicy and tender, plus you get the additional benefit of even crispier skin. Interesting. So we're definitely going to have to try that one time for thank That's you. true. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm kind of getting hungry. <laughs> uh, so is there anything else you'd like to say before I run off and get something to snack on? No, I think I'll let you go and, and munch on whatever you're going to eat. All right. Well, I'm going to do that now because next week we're going to talk about intermittent fasting where you don't eat for periods of time. And we already brought that up when we went over the longevity paradox by Dr. Gundry. He recommends it, and you went into a lot of detail, but we're going to look into the whole aspect of intermittent fasting a little bit further because people get, they hear about it. It's like, oh, okay, so I'm just going to not eat anything for three days. I remember some of the guys in our grit group did that a while back. It's like, yeah, I'm going five days not eating anything. It's like, I don't know if that's the way it's supposed to be. So we're going to go over that so people have a better understanding of, you know, length of time and what that affects. And, you know, it's like going for two hours without food isn't really intermittent fasting. So we're going to go over that in more detail next week. Okie dokie. Thanks for joining us this week on the Body Chat Podcast. We both really appreciate your time and your attention. We want to provide you with interesting and informative episodes each week And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or any questions you'd like us to answer, send an email to us at info at bodychatpodcast.com. That's info at bodychatpodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to the Body Chat Podcast now on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. See you next week.